0: the 14th chapter of the book of Romans, concerning the lordship of Christ. And I'll read verses 1 through 12. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stands he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Before the Bema. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Just a moment ago we sang, Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. I wonder if we really understand the words we have just sung. Are these words so familiar that they have lost their impact? Jesus is Lord is one of the earliest Christian creeds and by that confession men submitted themselves to God and proclaimed Him the ruler of the world. But in so doing they put their life on the line because the Lords of the earth were anxious to feed the followers of another Lord to the lions. And with that confession, Jesus is Lord, brought great opposition to the Christian gospel. Now that opposition is no less as severe or intense, it's just more subtle. Because a materialistic society has sought to make Christianity such a personal thing that that it really does not affect one's daily life seems to have worked. According to the polls, there is really no real belief that Jesus Christ and believing in Him and trusting in Him makes any real difference in the way one lives. It's kind of a personal thing that does not work itself out in life, according to Gallup's poll. There is not really much difference between the person who comes to church and the one who does not. And I suppose that the greatest challenge facing the church today is the challenge to reassert the lordship of Jesus. Do we really understand what it means to be a Christian? That the living God has come to indwell a believer and that He has come to rule there and that when He comes to rule, everything must change. His values and His goals and His desires and His habits must change. And that if the Lordship of Jesus Christ does not disturb your Lordship, then your conversion is suspect. When the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, there was, a, there was some trouble going on in the church at Rome. Problems over silly little things like what people were supposed to eat, the, the observance of dietary laws and, and feast days and festivals that people were supposed to celebrate. and They were divided over that. And the Apostle Paul said, that stuff is marginal. That's not the real issue. The real issue is the lordship of Jesus Christ. The real question is not what days you observe or what foods you eat. The real question is who, who To whom do you belong and where have you bended your knee and to whom have you given your obedience? Is Jesus Christ really Lord of your life? For when you settle that issue, that's a settlement that settles everything else down the line. I heard about a man who was drafted into the army against his deepest desires. He wanted out from the first day of induction. And he started acting kind of strange after he got into the service looking for a way out. And as he'd walk along out on the on, on the on the on the, and on the grounds, every time he saw a piece of paper, he'd pick it up and look at it. He'd say, "That's not it. That's not it." And everywhere he went, he he'd look and he'd say, "That's not it." If he was in the office of his commanding officer, a piece of paper on the desk, he'd pick it up. He'd say, "That's that's not it." And they thought he was acting kind of strange, so they sent him to the psychiatrist. And he did therapy on him. And came back. He said, "It's a strange guy, but..." But find nothing wrong with him. He kept observing him. Everywhere he p- found some paper, he'd pick it up and say, that's not it. Finally, they decided they'd discharge He's bound to be sick, discharging. So his commanding officer called him in and handed him, he said, I'm going to give you a discharge. This is your, these are your honorable discharge papers. He picked them up, he looked at him. he said, that's it. How many people who you, do you know who go through life looking for it? And how many Christians do you know? who are so unhappy with their Christian faith, it's not what they thought it would be. Their Christianity is not what they hoped it would be. And they're always looking for something or put a little excitement into their life, something new, something different. I tell you, this is it. When a man makes Jesus Christ the uncontested, unrivaled Lord of his life, he has found it. He has found the secret of all of it. He has found what He's looking for in life. Now concerning the Lordship of Christ, three things. First of all, the right of divine sovereignty. What right does does Jesus have to be Lord of my life? What is the right? What right does He have? Well, the text says He died and He rose again to gain that right. That was the purpose of His death. That's why He died. That's why He rose again. That's why He lives, in order that He might be the Lord of your life. In other words, Paul said that Jesus Christ died to purchase me. He bought you lock, stock, and barrel. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirits, because they are the Lord's. Have you ever thought how superfluous that sounds? You are bought with a price. That's not the way you talk. You don't say, I, go to the, I went to the grocery store yesterday and bought some bread with a price. That's assumed. So why did the Apostle Paul just drop in that phrase, with a price? Well, he did it in order for us to know that this purchase was not a figurative event. It was a literal event. He bought you, and the currency he used was his own blood. He bought your hands to serve him with. He bought your eyes to see his will and to do it. He bought your feet to spread the gospel. He bought your heart to pour out love on an unloving world. He bought your personality that He might have a magnifying glass through which He could reveal Himself to the world. He died in order to purchase you. And He rose again, the text says, in order that He might possess you. And when Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus as the proof of His Lordship, he means that when Jesus rose again... He conquered everything that conquered us. Therefore, He has the right to be our Lord. I don't know if you were watching as I was watching the night the final four came down to two teams. I was at my daughter's house. In uh, Del Rio, Texas, uh, getting ready to move her out of there, but we it, all conversation stopped when the final, when that the championship game came on, and I was glued to the set when that uh, when Smart, that uh, uh, guard for the uh, Indiana uh, Hoosiers, came down the court with seconds left, made the shot, won the game. And Indiana was proclaimed national champion. Now I'm not very smart, but I'm smart enough to know the reason why they earned the right to be champions was because they beat the team that beat everybody else. There's only one person, only one, who has the right to the absolute unrivaled lordship of your life, and he's the one that has defeated everything that's defeated you. In latter history, he comes to a chapter on civilizations, in which he describes what he calls the savior of the civilizations. And he lists them as the saviors with a scepter, the great kings and and, and monarchs, the saviors with a sword, the great warriors and, and political and military heroes, the saviors with a book, the philosophers that have shaped history with their thought, with their mind. And one by one he says that these saviors are inadequate to be our savior because... They have not conquered man's last enemy. And he comes to what he calls the God-man saviors of Greek mythology. And one by one, he sets them aside and says, none of these saviors are adequate to be our Lord. And in the last sentence of that chapter, he makes this poignant statement, he said. When the last civilization is over and we come to the river of death, we shall see the Savior on the other side, awaiting the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And the Savior he was talking about was the one who conquered man's last enemy, death. The Savior, even Jesus. He has a right to be Lord because he died to purchase us and rose again to possess us. In the Lordship of Christ, secondly... There is the realm of divine sovereignty. How far does this sovereignty extend and this lordship extend? And he's lord of the living. Doesn't leave very many more places, (laughs) very many more people, does it? Now this is what Paul was saying. He's saying that... Because Jesus has the right of lordship, we are responsible to Him in life, and we are accountable to Him in death. We are responsible to Him in life. Ours is such an irresponsible society. That's why everybody freewheels it. How responsible are you as a husband, as a wife, as a church member, as a businessman, as a teacher. I tell you, we are responsible to God for every moment we live, every moment. There is a technique that Madison Avenue uses to sell its product in its, in its marketing. They'll take somebody that's a, a popular or well-known person and they'll get that person to endorse the product. And what that person is doing is he's putting his name and his reputation on the product. When I was a kid growing up, I, my baseball team was the St. Louis Cardinals. I lived and died with the Cardinals. The last thing I did when I, before I went to bed was check, see if I could find how the Cardinals did. And the First thing in the morning, if I didn't get the score on the, at night, the first thing I did before I had to do my chores, get ready for school, or do, in the summertime do my chores, was to listen to see if I get the Cardinals score. And my hero was Stan Musial. I mean, he was my idol. Now I remember the first time I went to get my first baseball bat. Dad took me to the hardware store and there were some baseball bats there. And I chose the one that had his name on it. His signature had his name on that bat. had to be the best one because he had his endorsement on it. What he was doing was saying this. He was saying that this bat is consistent with my standards as an athlete. What is our responsibility as a Christian? The Apostle Paul said, whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of Jesus. That's our responsibility. What he meant by that was this, that everything we do in life we must do consistent with the character of Christ. It's wonderful when your children do what you tell them to. It's even more wonderful when they come to you someday and say, Dad, there was something I confronted today, I just did what I thought you'd want me to do. I just did what I thought would make you happy. One is wonderful, the other is wonderful multiplied. What, what our responsibility in life to, as a Christian is not to keep some rules that have been established, but to live a life that is consistent with the character of Jesus, what He would endorse. That's our responsibility, nothing less. We're responsible in life. We're accountable in death. He said every man must give an account to God. Somehow, way, there's going to be a future evaluation of your life and mine. Somehow, somewhere, God is going to roll the videotapes of Tidwell, and I'm going to give a deed-by-deed account of the stewardship of my life, how I've lived and how i thrived on the indwelling Christ within me. The Scripture says that every man, every man will stand before the bema, before the judgment seat of Christ. Now that is not a judgment concerning heaven and hell. That judgment's already been made. The ultimate question that God asks is this, what have you done with my son? If I've rejected him, I'm already judged and I'm separated from God forever. If I can answer, well, I have embraced the Lord Christ from that time on, I'm in Christ, and my judgment's already passed. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. This judgment that he's talking about in our text has not, does not deal with man's person. It deals with man's production. And somehow, somewhere, in this future accounting, every man will give an account of every deed done in the body. For He said, no man lives to himself. No man dies to himself. We have an influence that goes on and on and on in the lives of others, and I must give an accounting to God for that. And one day God's going to ask me what I've done with these possessions to which He has entrusted me. And one day God's going to ask me what I've done with this time that He's permitted me. And He's going to ask me what I've done with this talent by which I've been gifted. And I'm going to account to God For every deed in the body, I am responsible to Him because He's Lord in this life, and I am accountable to Him because He's Lord in death. The text suggests a third thing. That is the rule of divine sovereignty. How is this sovereignty affected, and how is Jesus made Lord? And the answer is in verse 11. He said, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. And there is the rule of divine sovereignty. The the bent knee and the tongue of praise. Now watch this. When He talks about every knee shall bow, He's talking about absolute submission. And when He's talking about every tongue shall praise, He's talking about unashamed confession. So there is no lordship in one's life without absolute submission and unashamed confession. Absolute submission. Everything submitted to God. From time to time you've had company who come to see you, I'm sure, and everybody doubles up. Don't you love it? Kids sleep together, you know, and couches are made, pallets are made, and company comes. Let's imagine that you having a house full of company. Some family comes this weekend, and so you say to the person who's come to see you, now you just make yourself at home. Going to be here a week? Wonderful. Just make yourself at home. My house is yours. Whatever you desire, whatever you need. Just help yourself. I've got to work this week, but you just make yourself at home. So one afternoon you come in from work, and you find him going through your love letters. He's got your tax forms out, and he's checking them out, and your, and your will, your personal will. And so you kind of walk in, and you, you want him to know that you're there, so you've got to <clears throat> clear your throat a little bit. He turns around, he just goes on, looking at your love letters, reading your tax form, checking your will. And you ask, is there anything I can do to help you? Can I help you? What you're asking is, what are you doing in my personal belongings? He said, oh, no, no, fine. I'm finding all I need right here. I, I, my life's, been, you know, the week's been kind of boring, and, and I thought I, if I could find your love letters and your tax forms and your will, put a little spice in my life, and I, I found what I'm looking for. And so you say, well, now wait. By that time, you're sufficiently angry enough to say you have no right in my personal things. Oh, he says with a shock, I thought you said that, that I had the free run of the house. I thought you said, make yourself at home, that everything was mine to use. I thought you said, I'm welcomed here. Is it possible that you've invited Jesus Christ into your life, Christian? And you've told Him you come in and make yourself at home, but inside secretly you have rooms that are closed to Him. I ask you this morning, have you given Him every key to your life? Have you given him the key to every room of your life? Have you given him the key to the personal things, to the loves of your life, to the will of your life, to the goals and ambitions of your life? Have you given him the key to the privacy of your life? Have you you surrendered every room to him? If you must say, there's some things held back, then there has been no absolute submission, and he's not Lord. The Apostle Paul makes it clear where that submission runs in the home, he said. It doesn't take long in the book of Ephesians to find that the key of family life is submission. Husbands submitting themselves to their wives, loving them as Christ loved the church. Wives submitting to husbands as the church submitted to Him. Children submitting themselves to the authority of their parents. And that submission runs into the life of the church. In the book of Hebrews it says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch over your souls as those who must give an account. And it runs through all of the world of daily life. And the scripture says to submit to every ordinance of man. Every ordinance of man. It ought to be that whenever an employer goes to the employment agency, he should walk in and say, give me all the... The, uh, the people give me all of those who are, that, uh, that you have there that are Christians because they make the best employees they're always on time, they never gossip, they never cheat they never lie why you'd think that they think I'm Lord and I'm convinced that when that happens on Sunday, on Monday we'll believe what we hear on Monday every area every ordinance of man that means the speed limit yes I know I'm talking to myself that was the first thing you thought of. One if he's listening to himself? I know it means the income tax. I know that. I know it means the prompt payment of your debt. For I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ is not Lord of your life until that submission touches every area of your life. Absolute submission. Absolute submission. And unashamed confession we're all committed to the confession of Jesus Christ as the Lord of our life the Bible says that we cannot call him Lord except by the Holy Spirit what that means is that when the Holy Spirit is in control of your life you're going to confess Jesus as your Lord, you'll listen to me kids when the Holy Spirit confesses Jesus in you that that he is Lord it means that there's nothing comes first no rival to Him. Not only is it an unashamed confession with the lip, we can do that pretty easily, on Sunday morning especially, but it means in word and action, it means an action in action and deed. And it means that when somebody asks what makes that person tick, what makes that person different, the answer to the question is that person is submitted to the unrivaled, uncontested Lordship of Christ. Now the question is how can I make Jesus my Lord? I'm going to touch three things in five minutes and we're through. First you must confess Him as Lord. You must confess Him as Lord. Now if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus say it with your mouth I I give Jesus Lordship. Secondly Place the things of your life under His control, the precious things, your children. I bring my children to you, and I submit them to you, to your lordship. My health, I submit to your lordship. My relationships, my health, my children, precious things, the things most important, I submit to you, Lord, they're yours. My business, my job, I'm, I'm worried about it. I'm going to submit that to you. I'm not going to worry anymore. I submit it to your Lordship. Precious things. Personal things. How you look. One of the greatest problems today, I'm convinced in counseling with people, is that they've never been content with the way they look. How you look. Trying to lose weight? Aren't we all? Aren't most of us? I submit these personal things to you. Problem things, I submit to you. These interpersonal relationships, I submit to you. This ch- teenager that I'm struggling to communicate with, I submit to you. These difficult, this bill that I can't pay, these, these debts that are hounding me, I submit to you. Problem things, possessions, I submit what I have, I submit to you. You've let me use these things that I enjoy. These are yours now. I'm not going to cling to possessions and wealth, etc. It's yours. That's lordship. Hold nothing back. Robert Munger has a little book called, a little pamphlet really, it takes about 10 minutes to read, called Christ, My Heart, Christ's Home. And he pictures man's heart as a home, a house, The Lord comes to live there, and He gives him four keys. He gives him the key to his library, that's his mind. He gives him the key to his kitchen, that's his appetite, his desire. He gives him the key to the living room, that's his pleasure, that's his his social life. He gives him the key to the workroom, that's his labor. One day the Lord comes to him and says, Sir... There's something that reeks of death, stench. It's a stench I can't stand. It smells of death in this house. And I think it's up in that little closet upstairs in the hall. I think it's coming from there. There's death there. It stinks. If you'll give me the key, I'll clean it out. The man's offended. He said, I give you the key to my library. I give you the key to my kitchen, my living room, my Workroom, you want the key to that little closet, three by five closet? You want that key? Aren't you satisfied with the keys that you have? And the Lord says, well, I'm not going to live in a house where there's that smell. I'll just move my bed out on the back porch. I'm talking to some people this morning. The Lord has not departed your life. But he says, far away from you as he was, it seems, before you were ever saved. He's moved out on the back porch. The Lord said, I'll just take my bed. We'll go out on the back porch. I'll stay there. He said, oh no, Lord, don't do that. I just don't have the energy to clean out that room. I didn't ask you to clean it out. You give me the key. You give me the key. And I'll clean out the sin, the bitterness, the anger, the hatred you have up there in that room that stinks of death with trembling hand he handed the key to the Lord he went upstairs and he cleaned it out and in joyous fellowship they live together in the same house I'm asking you this morning to hand over the key to the room that you have locked up to him so that he can be Lord. It may be a desire to be popular, to be pretty. It may be a desire to be rich. It may be a desire to have status, importance. It may be a bitter spirit. It may be anger, hatred. It may be resentment. It may be some private habit or sin. I'm asking you this morning... To let Jesus be Lord. And to be Lord, you have to hand Him that key. I preached on the Lordship of Christ one day. And a lady came up to me after the service and said, Gerald, I don't want Jesus to be the Lord in my life. I don't want that. But I want to want that. I just wonder if there's anybody here this morning who would want to want who would want the desire for Jesus to take unrivaled, unconditional control of you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in this hymn of invitation, that in the seriousness of a, a plea, an invitation like this, you'd help us to be willing to search our heart, willing to be honest concerning the commitment we have made. and Give us a desire, Heavenly Father, for Jesus to be the Lord of our life, to find that which brings the fullest measure of joy and peace and power to the Christian walk. I pray that every decision that is made this morning will be made in light of the fact that you have the right of divine sovereignty. Because I pray it in the name of Jesus and ask it for His sake. Now there are three invitations. One invitation is to come and invite Jesus Christ into your life. The Bible says if we confess Him with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we'll be saved. You open up your life by faith to the saving power and presence of Jesus Christ and ask Him to come in. Just pray that prayer, Jesus. I trust You only for my salvation and I invite You to live in my heart. The second invitation would be an invitation of absolute submission to God. Absolute surrender to Him as Lord. And you do that publicly because you feel that there is the need publicly, that others need to see you do that because they know your life. Or there may, may be a need this morning, that's the third invitation, for you to come and place your life in the church. Walk with God's people here and serve Him with us. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.